Okay, so I want to ask everybody here to do me a favor. Do me a favor, okay? So, you know, this is a pretty serious thing that we're doing here, right? Come together on Tuesday nights to learn Torah together. It's a very serious thing. So I just want to ask you that since the entire year is now being devoted to Shabbos, that for the hour and a half that we're together on Tuesday night, that this is a Shabbos place. So no phones in the next hour and a half other than this silly thing that's recording me. And um, we try our best to leave the world behind on Tuesday nights. It'll impinge on us. Uh, certainly we're, we're, we're able to hear New York City's smile, you know, from a mile away. But um, for the hour and a half that we're together, it's Shabbos, you know? So we're going to try to immerse ourselves in the vibrations of Shabbat. Shabbat, Shabbos, left, right, Svardi, Ashkenazi. So that's one favor and, and commitment that I'm asking from you, you know? The second thing is, is that... Um, Um, it's so wonderful to be able to be together on Shabbos on Tuesday night. <laughs> and um, so the, for those of you who are here for the first time, you know, I see some friends who are here for the first time. I just want to let you know that this is a... Uh, this is a space for connecting to, to the heart and to God, to spirit. And uh, it's a space that we've been holding for seven years in various locations. We've, this is our third location. And Deborah Shimko has been the wonderful host for now for almost four years, four years. And we've been studying various Kabbalistic works. And this year we decided to devote ourselves entirely to Shabbat, the Kabbalah of Shabbat, Kab Shab. That's what we're doing. Cap shop. So, um, I'll tell you a quick story. And then we're going to learn a little bit tonight. We're going to enter into the, the sweet waters of, uh, of the Chadodi. It's a long time. The Kama, it's been a long time I've been thinking about when I'm going to teach the Chadodi to the community. <clears throat> Tonight will be the beginning of what hopefully will be a very elongated and uh, in-depth experience of this incredibly powerful and important uh, poem. But I'll tell you a story. You know, I didn't tell. I didn't have told a lot of Shabbos stories. I've been talking a lot from my head, and I'll tell you. I'll tell you a story. Thank you for that, Barry. And I'll tell you a story from uh, from the Baal Shem Tov. And it's a story that all of you know, I'm sure I've told it many times, but I just thought just now I had a cheshit, I had a desire to tell the story, so I'll tell the story. It's called The Sigh and the Sneer. I'm sure you guys have heard it before. Uh, Rabbi Yitzchak Boxbaum has a book on the, on the Baal Shem Tov, and it's in his book. It's a title, he gives titles to his stories. The title of the story is The Sigh and the Sneer. Not the Shmir, the Sneer. So it goes like this. The Baal Shem Tov once came into a town... And 
as was his tradition, the custom, the Baal was when he came to the town, he would usually, Baal Shem Tov would, would, would usually uh, go to the market. That's where he would find his best customers, in the market. And he would usually sidle over to somebody and start talking to them. And whatever the person would say, the Baal would listen, and then he'd say, oh, let me tell you a story. And before you know it, he would tell them a story, and then they would be in a conversation, and one story would lead to another story. And before you know it, the Baal Shem Tov was a, like a magician. He was a, he was a Pied Piper. He's like Reb Zalman, you know? Like, you couldn't just tell one story. One story was like, you couldn't have just one donut. Like, he, every story he gave was so sweet that you just couldn't help yourself. You wanted to hear more, you know? So, so before you knew it, he'd have a whole gathering. Usually women, in the beginning. Women would be gathered around him. Because he was talking from, right, from the, from the right brain. But pretty soon the men would also hang out. And he would light up his pipe. He used to smoke a pipe. And the Baal Shem Tov would, would light his pipe up, like the, the high priest with the incense. And he'd be smoking his pipe and telling stories. Now this particular story he told to a, a really large group of people that had gathered around him. And it was, it was Erev Shabbat. And he said, you know, you want to know what Shabbat is all about let me tell you what Shabbat is all about. Once upon a time, he said, in a town a lot like this one, there was a Tamil Chacham, there was a, a very learned person, and there was a Schlepper, Moshe the Schlepper. And these two people, you could not imagine two people like, you know, bum, ba, 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 bum, right? Bum, 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 bum. The schlepper worked all day schlepping. That's what he did. He had a big cart, and uh, it was backbreaking labor. And he would schlep his cart around. He would he would get things from people, and he would take them from one place to another. That was his work. And um, he worked from literally from dark to dark, and he slept a very little bit in the between, and that was his life. And the Talmud Chacham, this this learned and pious person, ah, oh, he was very different. He had a much different life. He also worked from dark to dark. But when he woke up in the morning, his responsibility was to get to shul on time. And then it was to learn. And then shul in the afternoon, then a little bit more learning. Then in the evening, a little bit of shul. And then come home. He's very punctilious, extremely devout, very religious guy. And he knew it too. He would think to himself, wow, really this is the right way to serve God. And he was a little bit proud. And not, you know, not too, but a little bit also, shall we say, grandiose. And so sometimes he would have the thought flow through his brain, wow, everybody should be like me. <laughs> and especially when he would see people spending all of their hours toiling in the fields or working in the market, he really had a, a slight condescension towards them, thinking, wow, if only they could learn Torah the way I learned Torah. If only they could daven the way that I daven. Then the world would be in a better place, you know? And when he would get there early in the morning, like to shul, he would write on the side of his siddur, came to shul early, went to shul, you know, stayed late, closed down the shul. He was really full of himself, really. Now, Moshe the Schlepper, he had also a similar thought pattern, but it was, <coughs> it was about this Tamachacham, but it wasn't... He wished that he was like the Tamachacham. He would wake up late, 
He could barely get to shul. Almost never went to shul. And his wife would constantly complain that he doesn't get up to learn. It's like, what do you do with yourself? You're always coming home late. You're going, when are you going to go to shul? When are you going to, when are you going to be, when are you going to be like the Talmud Chachmah? And he wished, he, you know, he kind of wished it was like that. But what could he do? He had to support his family. So the Baal Shem Tov said, you know what happened? One fateful Friday afternoon, you know the story because I told this at Kivlin. And one Friday afternoon, the Baal, the Baal Shem Tov said that these two people had a fateful meeting. And uh, <laughs> whenever I tell the story, I like to say, wah, 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 you know, it's like, they were coming towards each other across the big courtyard. In the distance, the Talmud Chacham could see Moshe the Schlepper coming, schlepping, all of his things. And he was thinking to himself, there comes Moshe the Schlepper. And off in the distance, Moshe the Schlepper could see the Talmud Chacham, this, this studious person, he could see him and he said, oh, here comes that Talmud Chacham. Here comes that Talmud Chacham. He's the one that goes to shul early, goes to, oh, my wife would love him. <laughs> And as they passed each other, the Baal Shem Tov said that the Talmud Chacham looked at Moshe the Schlepper and he gave out a sneer. He couldn't help himself. He smelled, you know. And as the Schlepper, Moshe the Schlepper, passed the Talmud Chacham, he gave out a krax, he gave out a sigh. Ay. He gave out a good krax, like, ugh. And they continued on their way. And they lived full lives, both of them. And the Baal Shem Tov said, you know what happened to the two of them? They, they both passed from this world and they went into the next world. And they came before the heavenly tribunal and the court. And the judge who was standing there presiding over each of their, their cases, their, their, pec- their, their, uh, their case, he took out the Tamachachim first and he said to him, look I, look, I see all of these days that you served God in such wholesomeness and integrity and with such passion. You are truly a model of what it is to be a religious individual. And I hereby declare that you have given your otherworldly portion in Gan Eden, in, in the Garden of Eden. And as he was about to hand him his certificate of entry into the Garden of Eden, along came two little angels. And they looked like they were carrying something very, very heavy. And onto the, the, judges, onto the judge's table, they placed the sneer. And the judge took one look at that sneer and he said, I'm sorry, my friend, everything that you did in that world, it's not worth it, it's not worth anything. And in came Moshe the Schlepper, and boy, he was nervous, he was, schle- he was schwitzing, he was thinking, there's no way, I got it coming to me now, all of those long mornings and long nights. Sure enough, they read off the long list of his could-have-beens, and he was the judge was about to sentence him to his eternal not-so-good reward. And along came those same angels, and they were carrying something very heavy, and they placed the sigh on the table of the judge. And the judge looked at the sigh and said, Moshe the Schlepper, this sigh is worth a thousand Tamil Chachams. You are hereby given your heavenly reward. You have a seat right next to God. And I imagine when the Baal Shem Tov said this, that he had a lot of people who really um, were crying, probably. Because he wasn't talking to people that were spending all day sitting and learning. He was talking to people who were, were giving out a krex all the time, saying, I, I wish. And Shabbos, in so many ways, 
is God's kleks. Shabbos is God's sign about a world that could be. That's what it is. Shabbos is God's sign. You know? I don't know why I wanted to tell you that story, but that, that's the story that I wanted to start with. It's very much connected to the sense that Shabbat is, is a day when we let life catch up to us, you know. We're always running after it, but here we, we stop. We get quiet. I spent Sunday morning at this interfaith contemplative uh, panel, and we were together, uh, it was me, a Roshi, it sounds like a joke, right? It's, so it's a, it's a rabbi, a roshi, a priest, and, uh, and uh, an imam. And we were talking about, yeah, we were like walking through a bar. We were talking about, um, we were talking about silence in our, in our respective traditions. And, um, you know, in some way Shabbat is the day of enoughness. You slow down and you get quiet and then you realize that you have enough. But isn't it funny that the minute you get quiet and you recognize what you have, there are rumblings that are not the, the kinds of rumblings that, oh, I want another you know, Apple product or I want another thing in the world. But I want something more. Like a klex a, a is like a yearning for something deeper. Right? Something more. So it's kind of funny because Shabbat is a day of enough. You have enough. You can't buy anything new. Whatever you had before Shabbat started, that's what you have. The clothes on your back, the clothes, you're right. You can't, you're not supposed to buy anything at Shabbat. And that's not just some kind of silly rabbinical thing. It's a, it's a, a very deep thing not to buy something at Shabbat. It means you actually have to prepare for Shabbat. It won't happen unless you prepare. Right? So, the... So anyway, so we were talking about the silence that, that itself is very full, but at the, at the same time highlights a certain lack. Right? That Shabbos a little bit. Right? It's like when you stop eating long enough to really feel what you're really hungry for. Right? Instead of like, you know, you're just eating because like your hand is, is, is stuck. You know, there's a bowl of potato chips, some carrots, whatever it is. I'll buy those carrots. Right? And you're just like eating, you know. And then you get quiet long enough and you say, oh, am I where am I really hungry? And what am I hungry for? What's really going to sate my, 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 my deep hunger? So that's anyway, I don't know why I'm talking about that, but that's kind of up. I want to talk tonight about, um, about, we were talking a lot about Arab Shabbat. And that's why I'm talking about it. Okay. So Arab Shabbat. Arab Shabbat is the sweetest time of the week. It could be. Because it's that point when, um, where, um, right? So you're really in love with somebody. And you haven't seen them in a year. And they're getting off the bus. Or people don't take buses anyway. They're getting off the airplane. You're waiting in the, in, in the airport. And people start to come out. And you're getting this going on, right? You're going like this. Right? 
right? Right? And your heart's beating. And you don't know what she looks, you know, she changed, you know what she's, you know how you're going to feel. You're excited, but you're nervous. Anticipation, right? Anticipation, right? That expecting, right? Pregnancy, right? You're, you're, you're pregnant, you're expecting. And that expectation is itself so incredible. It's so full. It's almost as if there's a part of us that doesn't want actually to see the other as much as we want to see the other. We're both wanting so badly for, for it to happen, but it, there's a sweetness to, the, to the, the heightened expectancy. It's called hachana lekedusha. Like there's a hachana, there's a hachana, which means to uh, prepare, right? Lehachim. Lahachin is to is to be in a state of uh, aroused expectation for the beloved. It's like you don't want the you don't want that sweetness to go away, but of course you want to see her, him, it. And so it's 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 so powerful that that the preparation for something is even holier sometimes in the in our tradition than than the thing itself. That the preparation for something can be even holier and and more sacred than the thing itself. Um, <clears throat> so you, you you get that in the in on Friday night. Now most of the time, what you don't what you get really in the world is a lot of anxiety because Shabbos is coming, and there's a whole lot of stuff to do, and you're trying to get it all done before Shabbat happens, and you're running around like a chicken without a, without a head, right? It's like Especially if you actually honor when Shabbat comes in, um, meaning you have a certain time where you have to stop by. It's not up to you. You're not thinking, okay, whatever, I'll just push it off in a half hour. You actually have to get done, which, uh, which you guys know is, uh, I'm a big fan of that. I'm a big fan of bringing Shabbat in when Shabbat comes in, not when you think Shabbat should come in. I'm a big fan of that. I, I go so far as to say that I think it's right. <laughs> in the postmodern context in which it's hard to say things like that, I'd say I think that letting Shabbat be Shabbat because Shabbat decides and not you is a practice <coughs> in surrendering what you think is the timing for letting go of activity. Because if it's up to you, you'll never do it. If it's up to you, you'll always come up and say, uh, 5.15, 5.30, I'll stop 5.30, whatever. Six o'clock, okay, does it matter to God if it's six, six thirty to seven? I, come on. And that's a slippery slope. It's a, it's a, really, it's a, it's a very slippery slope. Shabbat comes in. This is when Jews have brought in Shabbat for... So do you change it for the exact time, like when the sun goes down? When, when candle lighting happens, right? Plus 18 minutes. When, sun, when sunset happens, yeah. that's when Shabbat comes in. Okay. That's when our period of of not doing and not crossing off our to-do lists, not answering more emails, not answering more phones. This is the time when we say, enough's enough. Enough's enough. We've done enough, and we're done. So, Erev Shabbat. And we said last week that on Erev Shabbat was when the Kabbalists decided that the beginning in the 16th, probably the earlier part of the 15th century, then the 16th century for sure, there were all kinds of rites 
around receiving Shabbat, right? Meaning R-I-T-E-S, or all of these wonderful customs. So we're going to look tonight some more at uh, Arab Shabbat practices. Um, I brought in the wonderful uh, handout that my dear friend Shiryakov made last year for the uh, for his Sidur Skills class, and I'm going to embellish on it and add things to it. I'm going to riff on it, and um, and we'll, we'll see where we go. The first page, um, when you get it, is a. Um, <laughs> the first page, when you get it, is, is a quote from Gershom Sholem. Uh, they, they fell down. Can we write on, on Tuesday night shows? <laughs> That's a good question. Look at that. You know what? I can All I can say is now you know why... David Barrett's a lawyer, exactly. David Barrett is a lawyer. You have a special dispensation to write on this Shabbat, on this Tuesday night Shabbat. Shabbat Shechal B'Yom HaShlishi. All right, I have, um, I have a number of, uh, I have five more, or if there are not enough. There should be enough. I made 40. There should be enough. Who would like to take a crack at reading? We're gonna. Uh, who doesn't know who Gershom Sholem is? Who is Gershom Sholem? Good question. Gershom Sholem was the um, the founder of what we would consider to be modern um, Kabbalistic scholarship in the academy. He is the greatest uh, modern academic of Kabbalah. He himself single-handedly founded uh, the Department of, Kabbalistics of, of, of Academic Kabbalah at Hebrew University. He was a friend of Walter Benjamin's and, um, uh, and part of that whole circle of Buber and all of the early Zionists. He himself was a, a genius of the highest order who, again, was, was, uh, started what we consider to be modern scholarship in Kabbalah. His students are many, uh, many, many iterations, of, uh, many different stages in the unfolding of academic Kabbalah. But Gershom Sholem um, is the, the grandfather, or actually the grandfather, he's the father of, of Kabbalah. So of, of academic Kabbalah, a critical scholarship on Kabbalah. So who'd like to read, the first, who'd like to read this piece nice and loud? Because it will overview what we did last week and the week before. So I'm on the first page, Gershom Sholem, the front page. Anybody? It would be no exaggeration. Yes, Jamie. Right? Ah, Jamie. <laughs> it would be no exaggeration to call the, the Sabbath the day of the Kabbalah. On the Sabbath, the light of the upper world bursts into the profane world in which man lives during the six days of the week. The light of the Sabbath endures into the ensuing week growing gradually dimmer to be relieved in the middle of the week by raising light by the rising, by the rising light of the next Sabbath. It is the day on which a special Numa, the Sabbath soul, Neshama Yatira, enters into the believer, enabling him to participate in the right day right way in this day, which shares more than any other day in the secrets of the pneumatic world. 
Consequently, it was also regarded as a day specially consecrated to the study of the Kabbalah. So here we have Gershom Shalom telling us something that we don't need him to tell us because we've already studied it for the last three weeks. But again, in the Kabbalah, Shabbat was a day when you had an extra neshama. And neshama yitera, whether it meant literally <coughs> or whether it was more as Maimonides and others naturalistic, that you have more time on your hand. For the Kabbalist, it was you had a new neshama and that that neshama, that special soul, was a, was a Shabbat soul, Shabbat soul. It had three parts and so on. It, went, it, it left you after Shabbat was over and that's why we have the smelling salts on, on the end of Shabbat to revive the body that is now lost as an essential component of its own vitality. So Shabbat is the day in Kabbalah, and um, it, it enlivens the, the week to come. It, um, it grows dimmer, and then it is relieved in the middle of the week by the rising light of the next Shabbat. It's a waxing and waning of the moon of Shabbat. Right? So Tuesday be the dimmest day? And that's Tuesday would be the dimmest day. That's why it's good to do this. That's why? It's good to have this class tonight. Yeah, I didn't think about that. But it's also a good day in, in theory because um, it's also in Kabbalah, Shabbat, which is shares the word, it has the root Shabbat, it's connected to, to Saturn. Shabtai in Hebrew is Saturn. And so the seventh day was associated with the seventh planet, which was Saturn. But in other systems, Tuesday night was associated with Saturn. It's a very interesting thing. So Tuesday night and uh, is a very auspicious night to have a class on Shabbat. Yes, no doubt about it. And we're studying Kabbalah, which is what they did on Shabbat too. So great. Okay, Jamie. The Kabbalists cited three separate passages in the Talmud, which were brought together and presented in a new light by a conception of the Sabbath as a sacred marriage. The first tells us that on the eve of the Sabbath, certain rabbis used to wrap themselves in their cloaks and cry out, Come, let us go meet Queen Sabbath. Other, others cried, Come, O bride, come, O bride. Right, so, L'cha dodi neitzei hasadeh, L'cha dodi likrat kala, or likrat shabbat hamalka. These are all the English of the things that you are already familiar. L'cha dodi likrat kala. Right? What does the Chad Dodi mean? It means, come beloved. Dodi is beloved. Likrat, to, right, come to meet, come to greet. Kala, the bride. Kala is the bride. So the, so the Kabbalist took that passage from the Talmud, where, the, where certain rabbis in the Talmud would go out into the field and say those words. That's one Talmudic passage. Everybody get that? Kabbalist took that passage which certainly did, had nothing to do, it seems from the Talmud, that they weren't singing a song, they were literally saying, let's go greet the Sabbath bride. So they would go out into the field. Probably. That's the first passage. What's the second passage? The second passage relates that on Friday evening, Simeon ben Yochai and his son saw an old man hurrying through the dust with bundles of myrtle. They asked him, what are you doing with those bundles? He replied, I will honor the Sabbath with them. That's not really the story. <laughs> it is, sort of, but he le- left out the most important part, which is that they were not bundles, they were two bundles of myrtle. Um, two. And when asked what they were for, he said, I will honor the Sabbath with them. 
One is Keneged Shamor and one is Keneged Zachor. The, the Talmud says that one of them is, one bundle is for Shamor, which means watch over or observe the Sabbath. And the other bundle was for remember the Sabbath, Zachor, Yom Shabbat. Okay? I'll, I'll get, we'll get to that in the beginning of the hymn of the Chadodi. Okay? What's the third passage, Jamie, asking? The third passage tells us that Torah scholars used to perform marital intercourse precisely on Friday night. These disparate reports are interpreted in the Kabbalistic books of ritual as indications that the Sabbath is indeed a marriage festival. The earthly union between man and woman referred to in the third passage was taken as a symbolic reference to the heavenly marriage. These themes were combined with the mystical symbolism identifying bride, Sabbath, and Shekinah. Right on. So, the, so Friday night was, was party night. Friday night is like, like, uh, tonight's the night. That's it. It's a double mitzvah. It's a mitzvah. It's mitzvah. It's like, some people call it mitzvah night. It's a mitzvah. And, um, it, it's, you know, um, it's the love shack. Shabbat is the love shack. So, the, there is this passage in the Torah, in the Talmud, that says that, that Torah scholars used to perform marital intercourse, they used to have sex on Friday night. Um, so in Kabbalah, this becomes um, a marriage festival, a union festival, right? It's a state of unions on Friday night. So the union of male and female becomes, uh, and again, Kabbalah is heavily um, uh, heteronormative, right? Um, but the union between the male and the female on Friday night is also a union between God and goddess, between heart and tiferet and uh, malchut. So the heart and, and action, there's a union happening on every level. It's the night of unification. And so these three pieces, again, that Shabbat is... Um, a hiros gamos, a sacred marriage, and that they would go out to meet the bride, one. Two, that there was, at dusk, there was a particular story about a rabbi and his son at dusk, there being something important about these two bundles of myrtle. And a third passage, where, where sex on Friday night was, was perceived as itself part of the entire theme of Friday night, right? On the, base, on the basis of these conceptions, right, Jamie? On the basis of these conceptions, which are set forth at length in the Zohar, the Safed Kabbalists, beginning in the middle of the 16th century, developed a solemn and highly impressive ritual, which is not mentioned in earlier sources. Its dominant theme is the mystical marriage. A strange twilight atmosphere made possible an, an almost complete identification of the Shekhinah, not only with the queen of the Sabbath, but also with every Jewish housewife who celebrates the Sabbath. This is what gave this ritual its enormous popularity. To this day, the Sabbath ritual is pervaded by memories of the old Kabbalistic rite, and certain of its features have been preserved intact. Keep going. I shall describe this ritual in its original and meaningful form. On Friday afternoon, sometime before the onset of the Sabbath, the Kabbalists of Safed and Jerusalem, usually clad in white, in any case neither in black nor red, 
which would have evoked the powers of stern judgment and limitation, went out of the city into an open field, which the advent of the Shekhinah transformed into the holy apple orchard. They went to meet the bride. In the course of the procession, the people sang special hymns to the bride and psalms of joyful anticipation, such as Psalm 29, or a generation later, Psalm 95 through 99. The most famous of these hymns was composed by Shlomo Alkabetz, a member of Moses Cordovero's group in Svat. It begins, Lecha Dodi, Go, my beloved, to meet the bride. Let us... <laughs> Being too sexual. Right, so yeah, it's it's amazing, huh? So this ritual, which we described, we, which we actually discussed last week, in various forms, early forms of it have a number of psalms. Isn't it wonderful to read that they weren't singing the psalms because it was a religious festival and therefore they sang the psalms? In other words, this is what we do: we sing psalms. It's our responsibility to sing psalms. Essentially, these are religious poems. And because they were turned on to God and they wanted to express it, they said, let's sing these. These are songs of praise. This is what we do when we want to say thank you to God. They're inspired. Or they're inspired. Mm-hmm. So, like, if we had an American Kabbalat Shabbat ritual, let's say we had a Kabbalat Thanksgiving ritual. Mm-hmm. Like, what would it look like to have, like, on the eve of, of Thanksgiving, like, you come together and you have, like, you choose... You know, ten of the most glorious American poems that have been set, you know, oh beautiful for spacious skies. And you're walking out, you know, to greet Thanksgiving. And you've chosen these because they're expressive of of um, you know, of of the of the ethos of the day. So they chose these songs, these hymns, as a way of saying, She's coming, the bride's coming, let's sing these songs, you know. The love songs. The love songs. The love songs, and um, and and we don't have. It's such a wonderful example of of, of a a sweet generous of, of a, like a real. They just created it out of nowhere. It didn't exist before. It didn't exist before. I was like, okay, let's you know. And they took these three pieces from the Talmud and they say we're gonna we're gonna make up our own. Our own wonderful when you Friday say it evening. Didn't exist before. Was there a point before and after, like a point where it started to happen? Yeah, this is what he's just saying. Yeah, it just happened there. Before that, it wasn't. It didn't exist before. That's what he said on the bottom of the page, on the top of of the second column. It's not mentioned. It's an impressive ritual. <coughs> it's an impressive ritual, which is not mentioned in earlier sources. Yeah. The dominant theme is the mystical marriage. They wear white because colors in Kabbalah carry meaning. Red and black are, are the colors of din, or judgment, and white is pure, and love. They go out into the field because in the Zohar, the, book, the 13th century book of Jewish mysticism, the, the whole world is considered a holy apple orchard. A chakal, tapuchin kadishin. It's a holy apple orchard. And we are the gardeners of that, of God's fragrant <coughs> apple orchard. Mm. Well, that's so... The apple was... The object that's not Jewish. The apple on the tree. There's no apple in our tradition. There's either grapes, figs, or wheat. It's not an apple. It's the fruit. It's a fruit. Why it's an apple is a good question. Why do they? But in any event, but they they see the the this they see the field as this as the field of shechina, and so they go out into the shechina's orchard, and they start singing to her. It's so beautiful. And then the most famous of the hymns is this 
Shlomo Alkebetz, who was a student of Moshe Cordovero, who was the greatest Kabbalist in the pre-Isaac Luria world of Tzvat. Right? Isaac Luria, the greatest Kabbalist who ever lived, happened to come to the northern city of Israel called Tzvat about a year before the second greatest Kabbalist of all time passed away. In fact, he was a student of his for a year. And then he eclipsed him. So, it's a little bit like Wayne Gretzky and Mario Lemieux. <laughs> if you know what I mean. Yeah. go to meet the bride. So in this hymn, the mystical symbolism is explicitly, Jamie, combined with messianic hopes for the redemption of the Shekinah from exile. When the actual procession into the fields was dropped, the congregation met the bride in the court of the synagogue. And when this observance in turn fell into disuse, it became customary, as it is to this day, to turn westward at the last verse of the hymn and bow to the approaching bride. Huh? Did you guys know that? Mm-hmm. Yes. You did. Wonderful. Huh? Not to the door, but westward. It's not to the. It's to the door, which is which is presumably. In the, Ours is to it's the actually door. not. It's, it's it really it should be to the door. It happens to be west. You could have a door that wasn't in the west, but anyway, you should bow towards the door. You should turn to face the back of the shul. Yes. Where the bride is coming from. Where the bride is coming from. It is recorded. Why west? That's where the sun sets. That's what Jerusalem is. Because I think east is where towards Jerusalem. So west would be the back door. You turn to face where the the Shekhinah is coming towards. It's coming towards the east. It's coming this way. Right? And it's coming towards the, it's coming into the into the sanctuary. I think that's the deeper meaning. It's coming into the space. It is recorded that Loria, standing on a hill near spot, beheld in a vision the throngs of Sabbath souls coming in with the Sabbath bride. A number of our sources tell us that the Sabbath Psalms were sung with closed eyes, for as all as the Kabbalists explained, the Shekhinah is designated in the Zohar is the beautiful virgin who has no eyes, that is to say, who has lost her eyes from weeping in exile. Only after the meeting of the bride were the traditional Sabbath prayers spoken. So the traditional Sabbath prayers are essentially the only pre-Kabbalat Shabbat, as we know it, service that we that was extant was Psalm 92, which is called the Sabbath Psalm. Right? It's Moshe Yoma Shabbat. Right? Ms. Moshe, the Yom HaShabbat, Psalm 92, that we sing in our shul in a very funky way. 
Mismo, mismo, no, no, da 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 scooby doo be doo doo da 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 scatty da 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 bump da 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 bump bump bump. So Psalm 92 begins Mismo Shiri Yom Shabbat. This is a singing song for the day of Shabbat, and so that already existed. So Lachadoti was placed before that traditional way of receiving Shabbat because one had to receive the bride who has no eyes, meaning. We have to lift her up from her weeping in exile, right? We're going to get to some of the verses in the Chadodi, but it's a little bit of a solemn so, a, a, a hymn at, at parts, even though it lifts up. But we're essentially saying, we're saying, you're crying in the ground, right? Stop crying. Get up. Dust the dust off your... Right? That's what we're saying to the Shechina, to the Divine Feminine, or to that presence of God in the Kabbalah called Shechina. We're saying to her, you know... You've been, you've been sitting in the valley of, of crying for too long. Right? I mean, we actually discipline her? Are we sort of reprimanding her? Not reprimanding. It's Khalila. It's not a reprimand. We're giving her chizik. We're giving her strength. We're saying, it's too long. It's, you're, you're weeping for too long. It's, a, it's time to... We want to come weeping. for you. Isn't she weeping because we've not been paying attention? Now we're back. Weeping for the world. She's weeping for, weeping for the Shekhinah. She's weeping for... for what's called in Kabbalah the divine exile, Shekhinah Begaluta, which means a lot of things. It's not one thing. Mm-hmm. The constellation of symbolism around Shekhinah Begaluta is that matter itself is an exile of the divine presence because God is not obvious in, in, in matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's that there is a world of the real and the world of the ideal. It is because of the sins of people who distance themselves from the divine. There are a million reasons for the Shekhinah Begaluta. <laughs> And our responsibility is is to is to is to raise up the shechina from the dust. We're going to see that in, in, as we get into the chadodi. Just wanted to do a little parenthetical there. But um, only after the meeting of the bride were the traditional Sabbath prayers, as I just said, were spoken, and uh, and that is essentially. Um, um, uh oh. Are we all missing a page? Yeah. The first half of the Oh, come on. That's what I was going to do today. Really? That's frustrating. You, have, you don't have it there. Wow, that's frustrating. Yeah? Yeah? Wow, that's really frustrating. David, what we're doing that is the uh, the goddess of justice who's blind at transposition of the blind. What is the goddess of justice? Justice who's holding the scales of justice right. blind. I have no idea. It's a good question. I mean, there it's it's actually valor. Blind being blind there is a valorization of 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 not seeing, because not being able to see means justice that is justice is that is oh justice there. Ah, so justice is blind. Ah, so justice is blind, meaning that the justice is not being weighed, but it's it's actually its own internal scale, not by anything the eyes might see. So it's the opposite. Okay. I really wanted to. It's a second technical problem. No, I don't need it. Okay. 
Okay, everybody. So on the bottom of the of of the handout. So on the bottom of the handout, where it says. Yeah, on the bottom of the handout, you'll notice immediately that this, the Shlomo Alkabetz was a Kabbalist. And that for, the, for him, every word and every letter was very important. So let's look at the bottom of page 55. The bottom of page 55 in your handout. Look, it says, first of all, how many words are there in the phrase, the Chadodi, the Krakala, Pnei Shabbat, the Kabbalah? There are seven. You see that? Lecha dodi, kala, pene shabbat nekabula. Seven words, one for each day of the week. The second thing you'll notice is that the word, the first word, and the fourth word are the same letters. You see that? That's very important. The first word, letter one, two, and three, are the exact same letters as in the fourth word, letters 13, 14, and 15. Lecha, dodi, likrat, kala, kala, bride, kala, and lecha, let us go, are the same word. Are the same letters, just letters have been rearranged. And then you'll notice that there are 26 letters. And that the number 26 is a very important Kabbalistic number because it is the numerical value of God's holiest name. yud Hey vav Hey is 26. Yud is 10. Hey is 5, is 15. Plus Vav is 6, is 21. Plus the last Hey is 26. So 26 is always a number of incredible significance and spirituality. And so Shlomo Alkabetz embedded into this lovely seven-word formula an allusion to the great name. As if saying, if you want to unify the great and holy name of, of God, go out and greet the bride of Shabbat. <coughs> the Shabbat and the union that takes place on Shabbat between the divine masculine and the divine feminine is itself the unification within the yod Vavhe that that's what we're all doing. That's the, that's the, the higher marriage. It's getting to 26. It's important. So Shamor V'Zachor. So let's go back to, to singing it, okay? We'll go a little bit lower. So. <laughs> Shamor v'zachor v'gibor echad ishmi. It's 
in the Sidur. I'll wait for you one second. Let's go back three sixteen. Yes. Different Sidurim. If you can't find it, I'll help you out. Three sixteen. Mine says a few pages. It is. Page 316, right there. But it's not transliterated, so you're going to have to... If you don't know Hebrew, I'm going to have to hear it with me, okay? Is this the page? 316, yeah. Yeah, so let's say it together. Everybody, Shamor Bedibur Echad Hishmianu El Ham Yuchad Adonai Echad Ushmo Echad Leshem Utiferet Beletila. So so, when Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai was, was, was coming out of the cave with his son Eliezer, they had been in the cave for 12 years, and they came out, and the first thing they, they did was they went out and burnt, everywhere they put their eyes, they burned. They had been monastics, they had been completely isolated in the cave, and there was a miraculous... According to the, the, the legend was that there was a carob tree for them, and there was a, a, a water, a, a stream of water. Miraculously, they provided them with water. They were able to sit, the, the Talmud says, they were up to their necks in sand, and they were learning Torah. And when it was time to pray, they would get up and put their clothing on and then get back into the sand. They were essentially living an embryonic life. That's what the story, it's a legend. They were hiding from the Romans in the story. And um, because they were teaching Torah in public, and the Romans said that that was prohibited. So when they came out, their first exposure to the world that they had left behind was one of, of absolute condescension, and worse, destruction. And um, they couldn't imagine being involved in the world. Right? They found the world to be disgusting. And so they saw farmers, you know, doing their thing. And they, the story in the Talmud, the legend is that they would burn, they burned the fields with their eyes. Everywhere they put their eyes, they burned things. And a heavenly voice came out and said, did you come out of the cave to destroy my world? <coughs> and sent them back into the cave. And there they stayed for one more year. Uh, and according to the legend, that the reason that they stayed for a year is because that's how long sinners in hell are given. That's the purgatory sentence. They were given a year to burn, so to speak, in the, in the, in the, in the cave. And um, when they came out this time, they had a different experience. They found, the story is, says, that the Bimbalei Shabbata in, on Erev Shabbat, on the eve of the Sabbath, they saw an old man running with two myrtle branches in his hand. And they asked him, these, these myrtle branches, what are they for? And he said, they are for the, to honor Shabbat, one is for Shamor, and one is for Zachor. One is for keeping Shabbat, and one is for remembering Shabbat. What is he referring to? In the Bible, there are two, there are two, um, uh, there are two versions 
of the Ten Commandments in the Bible. One in the book of Exodus, and it's repeated in the, in the book of Deuteronomy, where a lot of things are repeated, not everything, but a lot of things are repeated. And there are a number of very, very important differences between the Ten Commandments in the Exodus narrative and the Ten Commandments in the Deuteronomic narrative. And I'm not going to go into all of them, obviously, right now, but the two, uh, two relevant differences are that in one narrative, it says, Shamor, at Yom HaShabbat Shabbat Observe the Sabbath and keep it and and make it holy. And in another narrative, it says, "Zachor Yom Shabbat Remember Shabbat. So, obviously, it's a problem. Really, if you don't take the Bible to be just a, a random, randomly written, <coughs> poetically structured book, but actually read it the way the rabbis read it, which was God's word, and every word was significant and intentional. What do you do with a God that can't remember what he said last time he told us? It's like, I told you in Exodus, Shamor. And then in here in Deuteronomy, I don't have the tapes in front of me. I'm just going to tell you, Zachor. Are they the same thing? Are they not the same thing? Is God contradicting God's self? Is God supplementing? So the rabbi said a very wild thing. And they based it on a verse in Psalms. In Psalms, King David writes, or whoever writes the Psalms says, the author of the psalm says, Echad diber Elohim, God has spoken once, Shtayim zu shamati, and I heard two. I heard two things. And so the rabbis and Talmud say that when God spoke, God spoke one utterance. And that that utterance had in it, embedded within it, both Shamor and Zachor, and the human mind split it in two. So Shamor v'Zachor, and then so the rabbis say that Shamor v'Zachor were given b'Dibor. What's Dibor? L'Daber Dibor to speak one speech utterance. So we were just singing. Remember, Shamor v'Zachor b'Dibor Echad. Right? Or that was I don't remember the nigun that we used. Right? It was. Uh, da 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 da. Shamor v'Zachor. So God, God has given Shemor v'zachor b'dibur echad in one utterance. Hishmi'anu el hamiyuchad, the one unique God, the one unique reality, right, has made it. We've made it known to us this truth called Shemor v'zachor b'dibur echad. Now, what does Shemor v'zachor b'dibur echad mean? Hold on, Jamie asking. Shemur would be to observe the customs and right. rituals. Right. And Zahor would be like to carry it with you the rest of the week. Right. No. No. So the way that the rabbis teach Shemur and Zahor and the difference between them is that Shemur, the rabbis have a number of answers. The first answer is that the, indeed God is complimenting God's self in Deuteronomy by telling us a second uh, a second face of Shabbat. The first one was Shamor in Exodus. And then in, in Deuteronomy we hear about Zachor. We hear about remember. And, and then the rabbis say that they come together. Right? We need each, they need each other to fulfill the vision of what Shabbat is. And in the second more Midrashic understanding of their, the differences, they're actually they, are, they come together as one utterance. Right? They're one utterance. Now, for the rabbis, Shamor are all the things you don't do on Shabbat. 
in order to safeguard Shabbat. All of the Lota says, don't do Don't do this, don't do that. That's what God was saying. Shamor, safeguard Shabbat. Right? Make sure you, you don't do all of these things that would impinge on Shabbat's holiness. Right? And Zachor, all the things you do to make it beautiful, to make Shabbat Shabbat. So for the rabbi, Zachor happens when you make Kiddush. Zachreu al-hayayin. Right? You're not refraining from something when you make Kiddush. You're actually doing a specific Zachor moment. Right? Zachor. And um, so Zachor is proactive and Shamor is refraining. Now, hold on to your Kabbalistic hats. Okay? I'm going to plug it in into overdrive. So Shamor is, is, is the, the refraining or the passive and is, is almost always associated with, with the Shekhinah. Which is also, is on the side of, like, we're at the feminine is also, right? The Shekhinah is the feminine. The feminine is always holding back. Like the light of the moon, right? In, in Kabbalah. Right? In this, in the, the right? And there are, there are many faces to the feminine. The feminine is also devouring, and, and there are a lot of faces to the feminine in, in Kabbalah. And the Shekhinah has many, many faces. She has every, all faces are Shekhinah. But in this particular instance, Shmirah and Zachor is the proactive, has the, has the, the word Zachar in it, or it sounds like Zachar. What is Zachar? Anybody know Zachar? The male. Zachar. So Zachar, Zachor Vishamur, is the union of Tiferet and Shekhinah. Tiferet and Shekhinah. Some say Yisod and Shekhinah. Tiferet and Shekhinah. And Zachor Vishamur B'dibur Echad means... Kabbalistically means that the purpose of Shabbat is to, the bringing about of this unity, this unification between, again, between male and female, between um, these two modes of being, being in a place of unified consciousness between inside and outside, between being and doing. On, a deep, on an even deeper level, that's Kabbalistic. I want to go deeper. I want to say... The Tiknat Han, when Tiknat Han, the, the very well-known, like we know him, right, Vietnamese Buddhist monk, he talks a lot about stopping and seeing, or stopping and observing. He talks a lot about, um, in a number of his books, about the sense that it's not sequential, that the codependent arising of. Um, of various states of awareness are not in a sequential order. It's not like like the way we roll out our lives, you know, at 18 I'll go to college, at 21 I'll do this, and at 30 I'll do this, and then I'll make my first in this, you know. It says they, they co-arise. So when there is stopping, there's automatically seeing. Mm. Meaning, I don't all of a sudden sit down on the meditation cushion and say, now I'm going to start meditating. And I'll get there. 
like in five minutes, then I'll be there in ten minutes. So the deeper realization, he says, of, of mind is that when there is mindfulness, there is already awareness. You're not trying to be aware. Like, this is a hard one to get. I hope we, I hope we get this. Some people get it right away, some people don't. It's okay, we're not rushing. So, trying to, um, trying to meditate <laughs> is, is itself as far as you can get from meditating, as you can get. Because the efforting of the, of the egoic mind to do something or to get somewhere is perpetuating the problem. <laughs> when you, as soon as you sit, or as soon as the mind says, Medit- now, right, awareness, that's it. You're in it. You're doing it. So it's like trying to sit here. Is anybody here trying to sit? Right? Because sitting is not an idea for you. You're already doing it, and it recedes from your awareness. Nobody here is saying, listen, I spent an hour and a half at, at Ingrid's class, and, uh, and the entire time I was trying to sit there. Right? And I still don't know what I'm doing, right? You, you sit, right? Sitting is sitting. Um, so, Shamor V'Zachor, so Tiknat Han would say that when you have awareness, you have stopped. And when you're stopping, there's awareness. Right? They come together, like a wink and a smile. And so, in some ways, the Kabbalists are intuiting and saying, when there is Shmirah, if there's true Shmirah Shabbat, right? Then immediately, Zichirah, like remembering Shabbat, is also there, together. Like they're they're co-arising. they co-arise. and they're two like you know H two O. There's it's Shabbat two O is Shemur v'Zachor, Shemur v'Zachor, Shemur v'Zachor, right? It's true that on a plane of reality where most of us are living on, right? At that plane of reality that most of us are living on, there are discrete moments in a Shabbat practice, right? I'm saying Kiddush. That's remembering Shabbat. I'm not answering my emails. That's Shmirat Shabbat, right? So those are true enough on an external plane. But on an internal plane, right, when there is awareness of what Shabbat is, then I am at that moment both refraining and positively united in, in celebrating it. They come together. That's what we sing, right? Shamon v'zachor bedi'iborechan Why is it unified? Because Hishmianu Yuchan. Because the the place that we are knowing Shabbat from is itself a unified place. Because God is not this or that. God is not either male or female, but both. God is not up or down, but both. God is not rich or poor or both. God is neither and and both. And so that source of Shabbat that is alive and well inside each and every one of us, is fully present when we are Shamor V'Zachor. 
you're no different in that moment. I just like I have I have news for all of you. My grandmother used to say that. I, just, I have to say, it. I have news for you. <laughs> I have news for all of you. But she used to say it with a very thick like, darling, I have news for you. So what's the news? So she would say, she would say, I have news for you. They're not so nice. You know, I should always have something not nice to say at the end of it, but like to to to, to wisen you up. You know, it's like you know, like you're naive. Like you're naivety. I have news for you. He doesn't really care, you know. So I have news for you, darlings. I have news, and the news is that when you are keeping Shabbat in some form, and some right, in some shamor v'zachor uh, combination, some shamor v'zachor cocktail that you've concocted, you are imitating God in God's own shmirah v'zachira. In other words. This is one of the, pr- the primal points of, of human beings imitating the divine. That's, that's one of the core m- meanings of Shabbat. It's not just because we were taken out of Egypt. That's an important reason, and it's there. It's historical and so on. And there's a, a reason for Shabbat that is, has very instrumental purposes for, for, right, for a culture that, that could become... that didn't level a playing field between those who have and those who... All of those economic reasons and so on. But the first reason for keeping Shabbat is because God rested on Shabbat. So God was the first Shomer Shabbat. God was the first Shomer Shabbat. Shomer Shabbat. Right? So when we are keeping Shabbat, we say, you know, it runs in my family. As a, as a divine son or daughter, my father in heaven, my mother in heaven, my, my Zadie in heaven, also kept Shabbat, right, a long, long time ago. God keeps Shabbat. Now, God's Shabbat was also, it's not just refraining, because it says that God stopped working, so to speak, in that myth, but God also remembered Shabbat, meaning God made it an important day. I don't understand that, what you just said, because I don't understand that God doesn't really stop. Trees still grow, with rain happens on Shabbat. What does it mean, God stops? So, in the myth, in the story of Shabbat, it meant that there was nothing new that God brought into the world that day, which is a way of saying to us that um, that we are to be really careful on Shabbat about adding to the world. You know, in other words, don't add anything to this world. God didn't add anything to the world. Whatever God had set in motion was already in motion. Right? If you start something before Shabbat starts, you don't have to stop it because Shabbat comes. Just don't add anything. Right? You don't have, so um so Shemur v'zachor b'dibur echad hishmi'anu el ha-miuchad. That unique God, that God who is miuchad, unique, separate, but also a part of, that one is given, has made it known to us. Adonai echad u'shmo echad. That's the next line, right? Adonai echad u'shmo echad. Right? Isn't that a wild... That's a wild line there. Adonai echad, u'shemo echad. Right? God is one. And God's name is one. Because for the Kabbalists, that's not a given. For the Kabbalists, God's name is not only one, but needs to be made one. In other words, it is one, but, but it's split in the world. 
I like Kabbalah so esoteric. God is one. Adonai echad ushmo echad. L'shem u'letif eret v'letila. So, Friday night and Shabbat itself are a day when we are aware, where, for the Kabbalists, the Kabbalists are aware of God's absence, specifically on Friday night. As the Shekhinah returns from exile, the Kabbalists are aware that they live in a world where even though they intuit and know God as a unified experience, they know that that is very far from our mundane, normal, lived experience. They know that there's a Sunday, there's a Monday, there's a Tuesday, there's a Wednesday, there's a Thursday, Friday, that those six days of the week represent our normal modes of consciousness with all of its fragmented and div- divided attention. And Dafka, specifically on Friday night in Shabbat, when the Shechina comes home to roost and there is the possibility of being unified, the Kabbalists are aching to tell the world, you know, God is one. God is one. Reality is one. With all of its different faces, reality is one. And we ourselves are, um, in our deepest place, we are also unified. And Shabbat is a reminder of that, what's called the world of unity. Alma de Yehuda. And so they affirm in in this first verse of Lechad Odi, where Lechad Odi is 26 letters that parallel the 26 letters, 26... The number 26, which is God's holiest name. And then they say in the first stanza, the world is divided between Shamor and Zachor. The Torah is divided between Shamor and Zachor. We know that there is, right, there is that, uh, we know that, that there is this duality, even in keeping Shabbat. Shamor v'Zachor b'dibor echad. It was given by the one God giving one utterance. But don't you know that the world is one? And they're screaming it in the first line. They're screaming it in the first stanza. They're saying, Adonai Echad Echad. God is one. God is 26. God is like the 26 numbers that come together that make one, that make unity, right? So, um, it, it's significant. Significant moment. On the night of love that we affirm that, that there is a unity. There is a love. There's a loving existence in the world that is unified. The shame ulitiferet velitila. So the na- the word name appears twice, right? Adonai Echad Ushmo Echad Lishem Ulitiferet Velitila. That the name of God is being exalted. The name of God and Tiferet, the heart, are being are being championed. Yeah, Brian. There's a saying, um, I don't know, in Hebrew, but that evil is the synapse between knowing and doing. The absence. <coughs> right, assuming people have kn- the knowing. <laughs> yes. Right. So that, and, and so here you're saying that the, that the the erasure of that synapse is itself the good. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. That's the unity that we're always trying to... Right, to bridge. Yes. Right, but, but everybody, it's all of the dualities. 
Like, at that first moment, Shemor V'zachor B'dibur Echad, whenever I hear Shemor V'zachor B'dibur Echad, I'll tell you where I go. Okay? So, I'll tell you where I go. As soon as I hear that phrase, the first, my first thought is that the mind divides what the heart unites. Second. Like the first place I go is that the mind divides what the heart, what the heart unites. And that if I could hear... In other words, I have two ears, but God has one utterance. And I hear it with the right ear, and I hear it with the left ear. I hear it with my right brain, with my left brain. I hear it in my spatial and temporal mode. And fragmented place. And that itself, that I, in that moment, affirm that even though reality is perceived as divided, I am the divider. I am the one who is bifurcating that which is is seamless. <clears throat> and I the I am the locus of that fragmentation. And so for me, when I sing that song, I really get it, it really reminds me that, that stanza. Especially when I say Adonai Chad Ushmoachad. I say, Wow, Adonai Chad Ushmoachad. And um, and I and I feel in myself that my own skin and, and my body is, is beginning to soften and become more transparent to um, to the to the space to, to Shabbat. And then we go right back right to, to the twenty six letters. So it becomes this dance of, of, the, of the unified name of God washing over us, right? It's like, Right? Unify above and below. Let us go to greet ourselves and to greet the other. Right? That's what's happening, right? Isn't that great? And so it's not just it's, so it's not just this really great song that you can that you can put to Leonard Cohen and to uh, every imaginable tune fits into Lachado D, you know. It's essentially uh, it's it's a sh- it's Shema. That's what I'm to lighten it's up. a Shema. It's a deeper Shema. No, it's not just a reminder to lighten up, Jamie Askin. <laughs> Jamila. It's a cosmic moment. I'm saying, lighten up inside yourself. Ah, like, light, lighten up. Yourself. Like, yeah, that's... The unification, yes. like, to me, it's like Reiki. It's like, you're allowing the stream of energy to come yes. through you. Yes, yes. Yes. Lighten up from within. Yes, yes. Inlighten up. Inlighten up. I like it. Inlighten up. I love it. And, and, then, and then you'll see... Uh, you'll see... That when we go through, we're going to come back to. We're not finished with, with the first stanza. Um, maybe for tonight we're finished, but but. Um, um, but we'll see later on that just like Tai Chi, 
is not a dance. It's a story. Right? Tai Chi is not a dance. I mean, meaning, it's not, a, well, it is a dance, in the sense that the dance is, is a choreographed story, right? So it is a choreographed narrative. It's a story. It's telling a story. And in many ways, this is a poetic, a hymnal narrative of Kabbalistic importance. We're singing a song, but the song has within it conceptual frames that are uniquely Kabbalistic. So the first frame is God's one. There's a story of, of unity. There's a story of how human beings participate in the bifurcation of a unified world, but that we have access to that we can enter into this unified place where we are honoring Shabbat, we're honoring peacefulness, we're honoring uh, contemplatively, honoring the power of stopping that also is a remembering. I stop and I remember and they happen together. And then you'll see as the narrative unfolds that we actually get into deeper cosmic Kabbalistic themes and tropes, right? The Shechina, the world is unfortunately divided um, in our perception and we as the Kabbalists have to raise up that divided part of the, of the divine and so on. And, uh, and then we'll see there's messianic fervor in this as well. So it's kind of a lot going on. All right. Brian. Or, yeah, and then Dave. I always find there's a dichotomy or a problem with the Shema here of Israel. But in order to hear, you have to stop what you're doing. Mm. So does that come up doing and knowing again? So it, so in in Shema, Shema is is itself listen, listen, stop and listen. That God is one. Um. And the implication is that they're not listening. If only you had ears to hear. Yeah, Shabbat is always, you know, listen, Shabbat. In Kabbalah, Shabbat wants to convert. Shabbat is evangelical. Shabbat wants to convert the, the weekday into Shabbat. Shabbat's not satisfied with like, oh, you're the weekday and I'm Shabbat. <laughs> and not, neither, are the, neither are the rabbis. The rabbis are like, it's okay to be the evangelizing Shabbat. You know, Shabbat wants to take over Tuesday, Wednesday. It doesn't matter. It's, it's colonizing. It's important to have those days, but Shabbat always wants to spread out. And in fact, the vision, the vision of Shabbat in, in the rabbinic literature and also in Kabbalah is that Shabbat, the vision, I'm sorry, of the, of the perfected world is a Yom Shekulo Shabbat. It's a day that's all Shabbat. So Shabbat represents the, the, Shabbat really represents the, Shabbat is resurrection. Yeah. And I just want to say, since I'm doing a lot of reading uh, on Christianity, especially Richard Rohr, who was a Christian mystic, uh, and, and he's talking a lot about the, the universal symbol of the resurrection. So it, it's true in Judaism, too, that we believe in the, in the resurrection as well. We call it Chiyat HaMetim, right? We believe that the bodies of the dead will come back to life. And many, many people, Kabbalists included, believed that the ultimate state of consciousness is not divorced from the body. It will be fully in the body, in, in where the flesh is demonized. Right, that we are, in other words, 
the fullest humanity is, and, and, and we're fullest, our fullest humanity is incarnated. And, and our fullest spirituality is incarnated. So what the Christians hold to be the most sacred symbol of, of, that, of that union of body and spirit is the resurrection of Jesus. We wouldn't isolate that with one historical figure, but we would say that the vision also of a perfected world is a world that is where it's all Shabbat. And Shabbat is not a day of spirit alone, it's a day of the union of spirit and matter. So Shamor Zachor B'Dibur also reminds me that when I'm having my chicken soup on Friday night, that's also, that's, that's spirituality. I'll tell you something interesting. The last stanza, Bo'i, right, Bo'i Kala, Bo'i Kala, it's very interesting. We'll talk, we'll talk about this later, I just want to say it in reference right now. It can mean, what does Bo'i Kala mean? Like, come in, right, come in. It's a, it's a point of greeting the bride. Bowie kala. Kala is the bride. Bowie means come on in. Bowie. Bowie kala. Bowie kala. It also means, the word bo, in, in rabbinic Hebrew, bi'a is sex. So, in that moment of bowie kala, bowie kala, there is the, this moment of saying that union of spirit and matter, uh, that it's not two. That's the deeper meaning of having these two, um, these two myrtle branches in the story in, of the, the two, uh, two, two myrtle branches and the older man. Is that the older man is running on Arab Shabbat. We didn't do the story here tonight, so you don't know the whole story. But he's run, they see an old man running. First of all, an old man running is odd. Like he's running, meaning he represents the 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 revitalization of matter, of the of of the body. In other words, the body that erodes, the body that has a descending arc, the body that will that decays, the body that is dying, is 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 revivified on Arab Shabbat. He's running, he's young again, and he's carrying Ud Shabbat. You know, he's got this little, uh, he's got these little these these. Myrtle branches, the hadassim, and he's saying that the, the that that it's not two. You who had your life in the cave and came out and split the world between inside the cave and outside the cave, you had to learn the lesson after twelve more months that the body and Shabbat is the body is part of the spiritual path. It, it is it, you can't divorce the two things. So. Shamor v'zachor b'dibur echad means this body is the place where enlightenment happens. This body in, in, in sex, in, in, in eating, in drinking, in talking, in walking, in running, in breathing, this is the locus of the temple. Right? It isn't otherworldly. Shamor v'zachor b'dibur echad. Right? It's not just the refraining from Shabbat, but you have to remember Shabbat. And remembering is Refraining and refraining is remembering. They go together like a wink and a smile. When you're eating chicken on Shabbos and that's remembering Shabbat, that's a kind of stopping too. And they're happening together. So no, what am I going to say? <laughs> I'm going to say at the end um, that come back to the Baal Shem Tov and that sigh and okay. say that krex that. Um, You know, um, 
that um, that those who are Shomei Shabbat and Zorchei Shabbat, those who remember Shabbat and those who, who are watching over themselves, are unifying. Um, Shabbat is the unification of those worlds. And I hope that God blesses us and we'll be blessed by the, the Holy One to... Um, to really be emes, I say emes dika, like really honest Shomer Shabbos and Zohar Shabbos. That we should be those who are unifying, um, you know, unifying Shabbat both in what we don't do and what we do do. And that our goal in everything, our goal in everything in our spiritual practices is to not be split. Right? To not split. Not to run away, not to split, in that meaning to run away. And not to split, to bifurcate, to divide what is not divided. Right? That's, that's, you know, we're not red states and we're not blue states. Mm-hmm. We're not Shomer and not Zohar. We're, we're Shomim and Zohar. And uh, that's the goal. So God should bless us with that as we also remember tonight um, the victims of the, mm-hmm. of the typhoon in, in the Philippines. Mm-hmm. And we remember also all of those uh, members of the community who are uh, having the Kaddish recited for them. So we're going to rise together to recite the Mordes Kaddish and um, make some announcements. Shkoyach.